Hi, welcome to the Pink Smoke Podcast. We are a Patreon exclusive podcast, uh, and we are we do a monthly show. My name is John Cribbs. I'm the co-founder of the Pink Smoke. I'm here with uh, Pink Smoke co-founder Chris Funderberg. Hi, how you doing today, John? Doing well, Chris. Are you and so, today? Are you excited for this evening? Very excited, incredibly excited, not just for this evening, but for next month where we're going to be, uh, this is what this whole podcast is going to be uh, getting people prepared for, uh, a five-part article by Martin Kessler on the great Soviet filmmaker Alexei German. I said his first name right, didn't I? Yeah, Alexei, (laughs) Alexei, and is it German or German, Martin? Martin Kessler is here with us. That's the big surprise we're going to talk right into and he is really, I want to access to John, I feel like Martin has written the definitive thing on Alexei uh, German. And so we're really excited to get on the site and we wanted to have him on here tonight to just kind of talk about this filmmaker who I think, you know, John and I were not uh, super familiar with him. And I think that uh, of... Uh, he's a filmmaker that I think it's reasonable to not know a lot about. And this discussion tonight is going to be sort of introduce you a little bit of a primer, a little bit of an access point. And thank you for coming on, Martin. And how do you say his goddamn name? <laughs> thank you for having me on. I think it's Alexei German. Um, I, don't, I feel a little bit like uh, when we discussed Shoei Imamura, like I, I think he's sort of a filmmaker in that kind of a league who's very interesting and makes these incredible films who's not necessarily that well known uh, outside of his country and who's maybe uh, done a disservice in some cases by by the western critics so that's <laughs> well that's funny i was yeah. saying to john right before we recorded this i think john and i both sort of just want to have this be more of an interview where we get your thoughts because you right. really feel like the expert to us but where this is a filmmaker that I had stayed away from a little bit because of who he gets compared to. And Mm -hmm. I feel like it's not that I don't like the filmmakers he gets compared to. It's like you see a still or a trailer and then here, like they just trot out the, the Eastern European all-stars, the Tarkovsky and Belatar and Andre Vida in, in reference to him. And I think that's make him seem huge, but I think a lot of these are bad comparisons for what I've seen, and they've kept me away from the movies. <laughs> sure. I mean, in the article, I start off comparing him to, you know, people like uh, Tarkovsky and Kubrick, just to kind of grab... Marketa Lazarova. Uh, Marketa Lazarova, just to kind of grab attention. And from there, I, I tried to go back and then kind of rebuild back up to that to make it uh, maybe more, more of a fair comparison and understand how different his film might be from under Rublev, like I, I heard somebody say, oh, uh, you know, Hard to Be a God, it's basically a nihilistic version of Under Rublev. And I but thought, that's, that's exactly that's what kept right me away. They're both three and a half hours <laughs> yeah, and like you know, miserable, the, but they're nothing alike. Right. The similarities start to seem more superficial the more you delve into where he's coming from, I think. Well, I think, Martin, too, the thing that the reason that we consider you the expert on German is that, uh, you know, you said you you are the expert. Sorry, go on. You you said that you were interested in uh, uh, doing an article on him. I was expecting, you know, seven or eight paragraphs on Hard to Be a God, and then we get this magnum opus from you, sir. It is uh, overwhelming and just so full of 
great insights and just great history of his career, his life. It's it's a wonderful read. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's not scholarly, overly academic. It is very informative and fun to read. So I, I'm just wondering where, but, but but I think, you know, I want to ask you first, because this kind of thing can be overwhelming for some people who've never seen his films. Do you think someone can watch hard to be a God, which, you know, got a lot of attention when it came out in America, finally two years ago. Without knowing anything about the filmmaker going into it, without seeing his previous films, I mean that's how I walked into it. Basically, I didn't know anything about him, and that was sort of the driving force for me to find out <laughs> where this movie came from. But yeah, and after Hard to going... Be God is recent; it's 2013. Yeah, but after going through, I, I sort of wouldn't recommend people start that way if they're going to get into his films. I think it's just sort of by virtue of the fact that that was the one that was released when I became aware of his, or I mean, that's the reason why I became aware of him as a filmmaker, you know, and that's, uh, you know, just out of necessity. But uh, I I think the way I work through his filmography, it's almost backwards to what I would recommend at this point. (laughs) Can I put a, can I just real quick, I did say at the beginning, this is for novices. Take us through the basics who is he where is he from what airs is he making movies how many movies did he make that sort of thing sure uh he's a leningrad filmmaker uh he worked during the soviet and post-soviet eras he made his first uh first film in the late 60s it was a co-directorial project and that film you can almost discount the way you you could discount a student film. He had been working as assistant director for about a decade leading up to that, but his his proper debut, uh, Trial on the Road, he completed 1971. That film was shelved for 15 years, so people didn't really see that. Uh, So he he wasn't really on most people's radar, even in Russia until the 19, uh, like mid, mid 70s, it made uh, his, his second film, 20 Days Without War. Mm-hmm. I thought it was funny reading that, uh, oh, it won these like debut, best debut awards. And you look at it and like, clearly it's not the work of a first time filmmaker. It, it's his second film. He's very experienced, very assured, uh, you know, so, but that was the film that most people would have seen first by him. That, and then, that was the first one I saw. Right. And uh, by... By the early 80s, mid 80s, uh, his film, My Friend Ivan Lapshin, um, that turned into a big hit. It was partly held up as being an example of uh, Pistorica, like the, the sort of reformation that was going on under the time under uh, Gorbachev, this film that kind of looks back and reassesses the past. And around that same time, Trial on the Road was released, and that kind of helped you know, I think the combination of those two films being released around the same time. Yeah, he had this, his reputation basically skyrocketed right then. And then he didn't really do much with it. (laughs) He didn't make a film um, that that was released until 1998. And part of what I tried to do with the article is figure out what he did in the meantime. He had some projects that just didn't get off the ground. Uh, He taught a lot. He, He was sort of writer on a number of films, uh, produced a few films that were very interesting. But I, I think people expected that that follow-up and it uh, just didn't come. So by the time he got around to making um, Crustelia, My Car, which is this sort of 
uh, toured the force, I, I think, <laughs> examination of life under Stalin. Um, I, I think he had almost been forgotten about by that point or had lost all the kind of steam that had been built up with uh, my friend Ivan Lapshin. So, like, that film wasn't received very well. It had some audience in Russia. And then it was enough of a success that he could move on to directing Hard to Be a God, which is the film he had tried to make as this first solo feature film and just kind of kept coming back to it over the years. I think he said he had about three or four false starts before he finally went into uh, pre-production for the final time in 2000. I think that that's uh, one of the reasons why he might be considered so inaccessible to some people because of this kind of warped, you know, uh, output where, you know, you're waiting for years for something new and he has a reputation, he gains a reputation and people don't really understand that there's censorship involved from the government and that there's uh, difficulty he's having just getting these films made for any filmmaker. I think you kind of think about Orson Welles and his the latter half of his career where he's just finding it impossible just to get films done. And it becomes frustrating to kind of look at the full filmography the way you do a regular director where you can just say, well, he had a constant output of like a film every two or three years, but this is like a spanning sort of thing, like a, a small amount of film o o over 40 years. Do you think that that might turn some people off to, to, to Germán, that they, they can't, just can't accept like this weird kind of output that the way it comes out? And, and let me ask too, as a sort of follow-up to that, are these films similar? You know, like thematically, uh, not thematically, but the way they're textured and put together, you know, are, are they similar kind of films the way like Tarkovsky made similar kind of films his whole career? <laughs> I think, I mean, on one hand, you can sort of say that each film is its own little phase in his career, but there's a continuum of style that you see develop. You know, he has the same qualities throughout, and they just kind of become more exaggerated with every film, the same stylistic tendencies. They become more extreme over time. Um, not, not to say that his earlier films are... are <laughs> dull stylistically like they're, they're quite bold but you know you look at trial on the road and it does still resemble the sort of uh, realist films that were being made around that time uh the the brezhnev era cinema like it, it kind of looks like that but you start to see it deviating and the ways that it deviates if you, if you wrote the adjectives all down on a piece of paper in the ways that make that film unique you know the same thing is true of hard to be god it's just amplified greatly. So I think that's part of it. Um, in terms of, of his filmography turning some people off, I, I think so. It's hard to kind of get a, a grasp immediately on it. And, I, you know, it, it, a person who's going to watch Hard to Be a God, they don't necessarily have that interest in, you know, post-Stalin era Soviet cinema or like, it, you know, it, it just feels... Can I, can I, oh, sure. No, I just, you know, I'm thinking here and it's like, God, this is turning into the exact kind of conversation that it had turned me off this filmmaker. Okay. And I want to mean, this is what I was thinking is before we started to record, I said to John Cribbs, I'm going to throw a comparison at Martin to see what his reaction is. Because sure. he'll be like, oh, that's exactly why I like Hard to Be a God. And here's the movie I'm going to compare it to. And John blurted in with, Monty Python and the Holy Grail? And I laughed and said, no, 
Alien Three, right? Well, so I, I think um, that these I films are what I think of more <laughs> when I watch these movies than than Andre Rublev. Truly, than you know, Ashes sure. and Diamonds or some other Soviet post-war. <laughs> movie, you you know? haven't seen it yet, but I did a big comparison between Alien Three and Hard to Be a God. Actually, in in the article, I haven't sent that section along yet, but I talked a lot about Vincent Ward's version well, of so Alien up. Three. <laughs> I, exactly. I mean, that's the closest thing that, that uh, came to be but even uh, Vincent Ward's earlier film The Navigator I thought that like there's a lot of similarities between that and Hard to Be a God and I started you know thinking about like uh, Sally Potter's films you know like she's yeah. you know what what I like about uh, Orlando for instance I think there's some of that in Hard to Be a God or some of his films and you know Garan like I, I tried to stress that he can be very funny in his films and even you know to the point of like camp or slapstick like not uh, not exactly monty python humor but you, you know the, his films are close they feature a lot yeah. of filthy people falling down <laughs> they do like you know he, he knows exactly how to deflate a moment that you're taking seriously by have like one of the main characters bump his head or slip and fall in some mud like i like yeah. uh, you know trell on the or no uh, 20 days without war you know the very last scene that they have together when she kind of walks away and you know she steps in that like mud pile and that's the last image you see of the you know the romantic leading lady in the film it, it's like getting muddy um so I, I think there's a lot of that i love one thing that you say in your article that i love is that the films have beautiful moments that aren't apparent when you watch them the first time that, that when you engage with these films that you, you start to see his hand in them a lot more almost like it's hidden and I'm just wondering, I'll just say like, you know, I have not seen any of his earlier films. I've only seen Hard to Be a God. Um, so going through your article, you know, you really sold me on, you know, his touch and what he brought to these films, like creatively and like what his voice was in these films. Um, and again, that's something that like is, is, is both kind of, you know, illuminating and frustrating at the same time, where it's like, you know, you sure. really have to be on your toes to, to, to like really appreciate these films. You really have to be engaged with them in a way that you're not with, you know, just a normal film that's just, you know, that's just, that kind of gives you all the answers right. and everything. Sure. Oh, I mean, ahead. one thing I found is that uh, it's hard to even find like a still that looks pretty, you know, if you're going to tweet about it or <laughs> like, you know, I, I try to use a lot of images, but like, because there's so much stuff often, you know, right in front of the lens or there's, he's moving it in well, ways that are very... dots, not still yeah. images too. Right. You know what I mean, like, like they're, they're, the way they're constructed is not just here's a single frame, it's here's, you know, 24 frames a second every second. You know what I yes, mean? Yes, exactly. No, I think the, the motion is a big part of that and it's hard to get across sometimes in, a, in an article that's not using video. You know, it, it can be a bit yeah. tricky. I tried to do at one point, um, I mean, you know, and this is me getting back to like a Bellatar comparison, which I know we're uh, trying it's to shoot, from, but like I, you know, I compared the opening shot of, of Verkmeister Harmonies with the shot from Crucially of My Car, and you know, they're both roughly the same length, and they're both composed of all these different types of images. There's close-ups, there's two shots, there's wide shots, there's mm -hmm. uh, close-ups of objects, you know, and they're all just within a single camera movement and you know i mean other directors are famous for their long takes too and I, I think to the point where 
sometimes people are just impressed I that it is a long take. take is really but a shtick. I yeah, think it's really yeah. a shtick a lot but of the time. I think in German's case, that feeling of unbroken reality, that's a big part of it. And it kind of it creates a, almost a feeling of uh, unartificiality, not in, uh, not in an obvious way, but like, oh, like this is what would happen if somebody just had a camera running and wasn't thinking too much about it and it was just, you know, moving it around the room. It doesn't feel There's an as like perfectly... to it, right? Yeah, like the fact that like, he'll have a camera person reframe when you're watching the shot, you know, the way you'd reframe. Yeah. And like, normally you would cut that right out, but, or, you know, do another take because it's got to be the smooth, perfect yeah. long take. And I think German, in his case, it's uh, deliberate actually. And that's part of the trick of it is acknowledging that the camera's there and it, it, it makes it feel more real what you're seeing in a unexpected way, I think. Sort of a controlled messiness. Yes, and that... Yeah, but that what's inside the frame is messy, films. and the camera yes, sort yeah. of has to be uh, lively. The camera has to be on its toes to catch the messiness he's orchestrated inside of it, is how mm -hmm. I feel. Does that make sense? Absolutely, and I think it's funny that, uh, like, I was just going on Letterboxd not too long ago, and there was, like, a list of uh, slow cinema, and somebody included a few of Alexa German's films, and I thought, like, that's so wrong. Like, Whoa. yes, there are these, like, 10-minute long shots, but, th like, they're too energetic. Like, you know, there's nothing meditative about them. They're very in the moment. Yeah, and I think that's why Tar and Tarkovsky, I push me away. Mm -hmm. They're not... <sighs> They're meditative in their own way because they're intelligent films, but they're not. Yes. But they're like, like Monty Python is a better comparison. You know, it just right. is. It's like, you know, John, tell, did we record that anecdote? What, what you just told to, to Jordy, to your wife about this film? Because I think that's uh, a perfect anecdote. When I, I told her it was a difficult film, Hard to Be a God is a difficult film to, to watch and she didn't I couldn't explain why I couldn't find the words to tell her why so I said just just turn on two minutes of the movie just a random you know moment in the middle and it's you know a guy urinating against a wall you know with his his dick slipping out and she was like okay I get it yeah. <laughs> but it's that kind of um, but it's also like Monty Python-ish in that way it's not like grim miserableism like Bellatar mm -hmm. you know anyway well, I'll tell you the, the, the breaking of the fourth wall and hard to be a God, you know, of the people constantly looking directly into the camera. What it reminded me of mainly was the shot in Aguirre where, Kins yes. where uh, they leaves Kinski and it's panning across the river. And then Kinski suddenly and abruptly turns up in the shot again. Like it's just there moves himself in a position. Of course, the anecdote is like Kinski was trying to always be on camera and always be in the, the, the center of twirl, attention. Yes. The twirl, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But I guess this, you get this great effect where it's like, you know, it's jarring because, you know, it has, it's very orchestrated when you see him in the first, at, at the beginning of the shot. And then when it pans across, you don't expect him to come there and suddenly be right in your face. And I get that impression a lot from that, uh, from almost every scene, I think, uh, in Hard to Be a God. Mm -hmm. I think that's partly why it was difficult to, put together those scenes you know i heard they could be quite difficult to choreograph even though at times it looks uh you know like we said sloppy but the, again it's part of the trick and i, I think but it's sloppy the way tom waits playing music is sloppy sure like you'd have to I, I think, a moron to not know he's in control you know what right, i mean right, you, I right, you'll watch like 20 minutes of the film and then suddenly realize mm -hmm. like oh this is actually really control this is like something yeah. that they really obviously had to put a lot of work into this isn't just a bunch of guys walking around a camera 
with the dicks out. <laughs> it's a trick. It, it, it's a magic trick. I think, you know, it, it's, um, I, I think maybe even Crustelia my car more than Heart to Be God or just as much, you know, you're going to get that sense that, oh, it, it feels like somebody just like waving a camera around, you know, not, not thinking too much about it. But, you know, you, then you realize like everything feels like 1950s, Soviet Union in in a way that is so immersive that you kind of have to pull back and realize, oh, you know, there's somebody really in control to make this world yeah. feel alive and authentic. And it, I think partly he does it to um, maybe out of like a financial necessity, you know, sometimes it, it feels like so immersive and, you know, you could move the camera 360 degrees, but looking at the behind the scenes, you, you still have sets where it's the three walls you still have uh, you know in some cases i think um you know not as much of the world filled out as it makes it look on screen which i think is you know i think that's movie magic that's the, yeah. you know the classic uh, magic. right right yeah. uh, <laughs> you know like I, I think uh i compare them a little bit to the filmmaker who's making a dow where he built a real or you know created like a functional Stalinist era city and had people in costume 24 7 all method acting for like yeah. years and you know, supposedly like there were like children born on the set while they were filming and collected like a thousands and thousands of hours of footage and like I think German's not that even though his films yeah. took a long time to make I, I think you know he wasn't actually shooting for seven years it was like a you know little splurts and bits and parts, you know, sometimes he would uh, shoot and then they'd go away for a couple of months and shoot. And then he said, sometimes he'd have to go back and reshoot because if something's changed or some things were different, like the Orson Welles comparison, I think, you know, is fair in that way that, uh, you know, these films are often pieced together over, over a longer period of time, even though it doesn't always, like they all feel pretty cohesive, I think from one shot to the next. It doesn't yeah. feel like uh, somebody... You know what I, it makes me think yeah. of, you know, there's the, the, the famous, some interviewer asked Jackson Pollock, when you go to do one of your paintings, do you know what you're doing? Do you plan it in advance? And he said, I don't know what I'm... No, no, no. I know what I'm about. And I think about that quote a lot with art, where it's like, I know what I'm about when I'm doing this. And I think there's a lot of artists who do that to try and determine how much is carefully planned and how much is simply orchestrated and what the relationship of yes. intentional is this is a film he clearly knows what he's about you know what in mm -hmm. way in a way that when you watch like harmony corinne i don't yes. think harmony corinne knows what the fuck harmony corinne is about you know what i mean <laughs> it's just like that's why you end up with some movies by him that are nothing you know and i right. think and some that are great but mm -hmm. I, I think that's not what this is either can right. i um throw you one question because okay. this is this is the primer to get everyone go what film should people start with and why and take out of the the factor of like how hard it might be to see or easy or any of that just what movie they're listening to the podcast they're a little intrigued they want to go get one what should they start with i would say a uh, trail on the road if you like action movies or 20 days without war if you like love stories <laughs> that's maybe the easiest uh, entry yeah, point for yeah, either yeah. one I, I think those films are both very accessible actually uh, you know even though the more you unpack them the more you realize it's there um and in some cases what he's doing is quite subversive but i think you know you can basically sit anyone down and 
you'll get a rough idea of where he's coming from, and then you can kind of build on that by by moving into his later films. When did he start his collaboration with uh, Svetlana Carmelita, his wife? Which uh, film did they start working on together? They started working on Terrell on the Road together. I just read, I had to go back and make a correction because um, they got married in 1970, but they met in 1968. They said their first date was on the uh, same day as the Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia, which is basically what canceled his first iteration of Heart to Be a God. So, uh, so they really met in between Seventh Companion, which is his first one that's co-directed in Trial Noah. Yes. But once they, after they met, they were just working together from then on. Yeah, and they, they stayed working together for the next 45 years. She had some projects, I tried to mention at a certain point that she made on her own. She, she had a solo screenwriting career. But uh, I know sometimes the solo screenwriting credits, like she was pretty open about the fact that they would write things together. That was the case with the Torpedo Bombers. Uh, he was uh, fired from Lenfilm at that time, so he couldn't really do much. So they, they wrote that one together. It was based on one of his father's unfinished stories, and it was kind of a combination of his uh, recollections from, from childhood and his research. You know, and I, I think one thing I think she had a real talent for that you can see uh, fit, fit in with his filmmaking is, is she's great at picking out sort of specific moments to... Uh, make something not generic, I, I guess, is <laughs> I would describe it. She has a very good sense of, you know, making a scene have some specificity that, that makes it very memorable and makes it very emotional. And, you know, I think that a lot of the times her contributions are to kind of move the stories away from cliche in, in uh in interesting directions, you know, like I, I thought it was interesting. She said one of the first things she did when um, German had her start working on the script with him for Trial on the Road is she got rid of a love story, <laughs> you know, because it, I guess it, it wasn't right. It was just like in there to be in there sort of a thing. So I think she could be, uh, you know, unsentimental when she had to be, but she knew when it was the right to put in the emotion for uh, for his film. So, like, I, I think part of the reason why he became great after The Seventh Companion is because of her, basically. I think that creative partnership is why uh, he was the filmmaker he was. Yeah, and the fact that she and his son, right, were the ones who completed Hard to Be a God after he had mm -hmm. passed away. Uh, yeah, it seems like they were very important collaborators. Um, I'm really intrigued by the idea, though, the love story in 20 Days Without War. I think you really do a good job selling that in the article. The idea that it's a middle-aged love story and not one of young love, you know, just as it's starting. Um, I think that's, right, what, I would, that's what I would want to say. Was, uh, <laughs> yeah, like the, the quote he gave on it, I, I tried to include it. Um, you know, I, I thought it was so great that... Uh, he's not interested in love stories about young people because young people don't really know themselves yet. Being young is a time to get get to know yourself, but the love of an older, more mature person, it's something else entirely, more genuine, more precious. So, you know, that, that really stood out in my mind. And yeah, maybe, maybe it doesn't sound like the most um, no, obvious. No, I think you that's know. like hard-fought wisdom. Yeah. As now that I'm almost fucking 40, I agree with you. When I, was, when I was 24, I fell in love with every girl I ever met. Now I don't even know what it would take for me to fall in love. It seems impossible. No, I agree with that completely. And that movie too, that movie's about 
cynicism isn't the right word, but like becoming like awareness that politics, it's, yes. I mean, it's got the movie within a movie on based on the main character's life. I mean, that's one but of my favorite parts of it. Clearly yeah. trying to understand yourself and understand yes. your life and having sort of like a reflective quality about it. But I think it's not just love, it's also politics, it's war, mm-hmm. it's career, it's all that, how when you get older and you have some wisdom, you know, how different it is, you know? Sure, I mean, one, one character I like who's a very small character is the director of the film within a film because he's kind of on Lopatin's side in trying to make his film realistic. You know, it's a propaganda film, but he's basically, you know, when he says, oh, we never actually you know, wore helmets all the time. And the, the political officer is, you know, of course, upset because everything has to be correct if you're going to depict it on screen. Yeah. But the director, you know, he tries to actually accommodate him. And then you get that flashback, you know, and the, the wall's blown up and, you know, and he's covered in blood. And it, it, it feels so different from what that director's putting up on screen. And the director comes up to him after and he's like, I, you know, hey, look, I, I made the movie great, right? I fixed it. And it, it, like, you just have that enormous gap between trying to get the details right and the actual uh, feeling of reality. You know, it's sort of something different completely. And I, I think German was very skilled at putting that feeling of reality onto film. <laughs> Don't you think also, this just also reminds me of, I noticed thematically, and I was wondering if you could talk about it. He's interested in sort of like when people create like experimental realities that they're in control of, that they're the god of, right? So you have the movie within a movie, which is sort of like an attempt to like, uh, it's like an experimental reliving of life. And the same thing, that's what How to Be uh, Hard to Be a God is all about, right? It's sort of this experimental reliving of human history from the Renaissance era, right? Sure. You know what I mean? I mean, I almost think of it in terms of parable, just knowing what his background was. And you, you find like other examples of that throughout basically all his films. Like um, in My Friend Ivan Lapsch, and one example I really liked was the uh, the, the fox and the uh, the chicken. You know, they have it caged off and there's like this little boy telling telling them that it's this experiment to prove that if you feed the fox, he, him and the chicken will be friends. But the fox kills the chicken anyway. So, <laughs> you know, like to me, that that's like a little microcosm of reality that comes through in the film. And then the film itself is sort of this parable or microcosm for reality that you can apply to that whole generation i think so he's i think by pulling it into more and more specific examples trying and to do you think that has something it, yeah. to do with the the soviet project itself where like all of he was living in a country where the idea is we're finally going to take control of the flow of history with communism and have all of these societal outcomes that don't actually work out do you think that's what yes. you mean by a parable i think so especially you know with my friend ivan Lapshin. i think that's maybe true of all the films uh, i think you know in hard to be a god he tries to take it into broader terms but that's definitely his background and where he's coming from with that i think you know the, the, you look at his films he's somebody who believes in spontaneity you know he sort of yeah. believes in unpredictability you know you think like uh, you know going back even to trial on the road like you can make a you can make a plan uh, you know, it, it's the perfect plan, but still something goes wrong. Of course, the, the soldier who ran away at the beginning has to come back and he recognizes the uh, partisan. Like, like, of course, 
the motions of history and reality are too complex for humans to really control. And the more we try to control it, the more it, it seems to blow up in our faces. I want to ask you this because, um, you know, I think what I'm really trying to do, and obviously the article will do a better job at this than like a 40 minute podcast, but I'm trying to kind of knock down the barriers that people might have at, you know, checking out Grimond's work. Um, how much of Soviet history or Russian history do you think is necessary? I mean, obviously the war and the impact of people being erased by revisionism and just these, these political powers taking over and knocking out the last one. How much do you need to know uh, going into a film like trial on the road? Uh, I, I think the more, you know, the more you can fill it in. Um, I don't think it's it's that much really, you know, like it's especially by the time you get to something like Heart to Be a God, it's completely universal. You can tie it to specifics in Russian history. Uh, and I think it is very much a film about the Russian history, but it's also something that you can draw universal things out of. Uh, I mean, you know, Trial on the Road, like you don't really have to have much knowledge of history to know that there's something weird about a Russian who's side with Germans who, you know, the, the goes to betray the Germans at a certain point. So he's a double traitor, but he's also the film's hero. Like, you know, there are things where I think it, it doesn't take too much context can to I, understand what, what he's talking about. Yes. Can I, real quick, this is something we don't often do, and there's so few of them. Can we just go through film by film and you very briefly just give like the sentence description of what they are? Okay. One, and we'll skip Seventh Companion because that's his first film, and uh, you make the case not that it should be disregarded, but that it's <laughs> it's not really a Germont film the way the other. No, I, I think like okay. you can almost treat um, you can almost treat it like a student film. You know, like it's very minor. Yeah. Like it, it, you know, there was another director on it who basically had more control you know and or like you can look at uh, the worker settlement which i mentioned he was uh, assistant director on like he roughly had the same amount of influence yeah. on that you know like it's not there are some things you can see him yeah on, but yeah that's the advanced studies shit sure okay, I, so yeah. trial on the road let's move into uh let's move into his first film proper which is trial on the road just give us a brief description of the the story itself sure uh trial on the road is about a russian who's in i guess it's probably not actually the german army it's the russian liberation army which was um allied with germans they had basically german uniforms and they were fighting against the soviet union in world war ii in world war ii yeah. Uh, this soldier named Lazarev defects and tries to join up with the partisans. At first, they're going to shoot him as a defector or as a traitor. Uh, but uh, when another soldier escapes and he doesn't, they start to think, okay, maybe this guy actually might be somebody we can count on. Uh, this culminates in a big operation to try and steal back a train full of cattle, which were taken at the very beginning because they're low on food supplies. So it's uh, a wartime heist movie a la Dirty Dozen, but about cattle. Sure. Yeah, and I think it's funny, German 
said he didn't really occur to him until he started shooting that oh this is kind of a western and or kelly's heroes that's a better <laughs> kelly's heroes is a good example uh yeah like it, it almost has some of that flavor the more you see it like the soundtrack kind of reminded me a little bit of uh, something like ennio morricone they would have come up with yeah it's that balalaika playing at the very beginning um well weirdly i thought of the the civil war sequence in good the bad and the ugly that sure, aggression sure. Yeah, yeah or, it's, a uh, weird, it's not. It's like an impressionistic feeling, but like the very end when he picks up the machine gun, he's like the lone hero with the belt-fed machine gun. I said, you know, he's a bit like the famous, you know, Russian movie Chapeyev, but he's also like Django from the Oh yeah, Frankadero. Like, like it, it almost fits in with that image too. So, like in some ways, it's it's like a spaghetti western a bit for World War. You know, two spaghetti westerns of... are a great comparison mm-hmm. for Paramount overall in some ways. They have a sure. similar, maybe they're not. They just have a similar freewheeling quality. You know, well, a similar energy, I think, and similar sense of style at certain points and unpredictability. You know, yeah, I always think of just how weird some of those spaghetti westerns are. <laughs> like, yeah. some and of that like translates. They're full of like violence and shitting and stuff. You know? <laughs> sure, you know, there, there's some of that. Uh, I mean, he talks about like being a big fan of westerns, and like he did specifically mention spaghetti westerns. I know he mentioned spaghetti westerns again when he talked about working on the Fall of Otar. So, like, there's definitely yeah. an influence there. I think. You know, he combines it with other things too. He's not just trying to do that. But I, I think, you know, some basic things like the way spaghetti westerns kind of confuse the morality of uh, the classic yeah. American western. He's trying to do that for like the classic Russian war film. He's trying to muddy it morale, uh, the muddy the morality of it. Yeah, and it does. It also reminds me of sort of the '70s westerns, the like post. <laughs> westerns by Don Siegel or Sam Peckinpah, mm-hmm. whoever, who would have the Civil War soldier be the hero. Right. The, uh, the, um, the, the Southern, yeah, yes. the Southerner. Right. Um, that, that this has a sort of similar thing where, you know, I'm thinking of, I'm thinking of Clint Eastwood in, in uh, Beguiled, you know, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But that's a character that's around a lot, which is the Southerner. Sure, I think Josie Wells, he's the Southerner too, right? Yeah. Yeah, so stuff like that. Um, I mean, he also does things in it, like that whole- Confederacy, God damn it, that's the word Con- I'm Confederacy, right, <laughs> right, sure. I was three yeah. in the morning trying to think of like funny, like Martin Van Buren jokes, but- <laughs> <laughs> If you thought uh, of I mean, one, you've literally thought of all of them. <laughs> I guess so. Uh, but uh, Alexei Garman, he also does stuff in it that like would basically be copied by every Soviet war film sense, you know, like that whole sequence with the POWs on the barge, like you can see the roots for Larissa Shvetko's The Ascent and uh, mm-hmm. Klimov's uh, Come and See, like just, you know, oh, in that yeah. scene alone, you know, like that, um, that style, that image. And he talks about you know, like while the film was banned, screening it for, for them both. And like, as soon as he said that, I thought like, oh, like they're, they're, you know, they're basically just like leaning heavily on this film that wouldn't have been seen. Oh yeah, like, oh, time. should I can steal that too? I think, I think yeah. some of that, I saying. mean, Klimov was also like a, yeah, a big yeah. part of why the film got released at all, you know? <laughs> I am joking. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I, I know, but like, uh, I think people, when, when they hear about uh, censorship in Soviet film, they, they assume it was like all the time. And most films, were not actually heavily censored or um, shelved, especially because it's expensive to make a film and there weren't a lot of resources to go around. So, you know, films could be censored in the screenwriting stage or, you know, they, they might be 
trimmed a bit, but it was very rare for a film to be shelved the way the way his were actually. Yeah. Um, I think when people hear about Soviet censorship, certainly I picture like people being erased out of photos and, you know, and <laughs> sure. having the symbols on their on their coats changed. You know, and that's not what it is with movies. That's not what it was most of the time. A lot of the time it was you know, the same way that, in a funny way that capitalism censors people with, where you just don't get sure, to I make mean, any more movies. Films get shelved here, or you don't get yeah. to make any more films. I mean, like, I'm kind of surprised that he even had a chance to make another film after Trial on the Road, because that was kind of a big controversy, but he had impressed enough people who had seen it, sort of important people, that there was enough of a push that he could make uh, 20 Days of War. And that's and the even next that, one. So, tw- oh, sorry. Right. <laughs> I was gonna say so. Give me the give me the thumbnail plot of twenty without twenty days without war. Uh, twenty days without war is about a wartime journalist who has a brief leave to um, go and oversee a film that's based on his writing uh, on his experiences to uh, deliver the effects of a friend soldier who had been killed in the opening sequence and. Um, I guess, give a a talk to this factory full of workers. And while he's doing that, he um, meets and falls in love with the seamstress who's working on this film. And again, World War II. Again, World War II. I think they take place right over the same time because there's New Year's in both films, right? Trial on the Road in 20 Days Without War. Yeah. Yeah. New Year's comes up like in all three of his, uh, like uh, Trial on the Road, 20 Days Without War, My Friend Ivy Lapshin. You you could maybe say, oh, it's like a New Year's trilogy if you wanted to or something. And, this one uh, sounds like the most like fish out of water of his movies. It sounds like his Doc Hollywood. What twenty days without war? <laughs> yeah, I know, in some ways it's like the most German because like uh, Trial on the Road. I think he's like still trying to figure himself out a little bit or trying to see like what yeah. works and what I can get away with. Like uh, Svetlana Kabelita said when he was uh, editing, he, you know, he put together a scene in sort of a conventional way and it just didn't work. And it wasn't really until he realized like, oh, maybe for the scene where somebody's talking, instead of putting the camera, instead of cutting to the shot of the person talking and then cutting to the shot of the person talking, I should put the camera on somebody who's listening or put the camera on somebody else. And he started to see the film come alive in that way. So he, he I think, figured out what he was actually good at with Trial on the Road. And then 20 Days Without War, he implements it from the start. So in, in some ways it feels much more uh, thought out, I guess. Like it, yeah. it's less like somebody kind of discovering what their style is as they go along as somebody who has a clear idea from the beginning. This yeah. is the film I'm going to make. I'm not going to compromise on it. For me, it's one that it feels like when you recommend it as a possible entry point, it feels like it makes a lot of sense. It's a, it's a very, mm-hmm. as, as sort of, uh, intellectually baroque and stylistically baroque as he can get this is a yes. very accessible movie in a lot of ways this is not well, a let movie me ask you, that, that is baffling <laughs> right no i mean there's like me one or two Martin. serious things in it but it's not not a baffling film you don't walk away saying like oh what was that about you know like yeah. some of his films have that reputation i this is definitely not that but at the same time when his style is developing with this film is this when he really starts kind of expanding his 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 camera eye i mean is this the point where like people who are off screen start talking and the focus is just kind of expands throughout like the entire world of the film i mean like you can find it in trial on the road it's just here i think again it's much more present and then it increases in in his uh, subsequent films but um 
I, I think, yeah, like this is basically where he finds his style fully. So then the next one he does, he has a 12-year break. He goes from 76 to 1984, and he does yes. My Friend Ivan Lapshin. And what is this one about? What's the, the quick? Okay, Give uh, me the my... elevator pitch. <laughs> the elevator pitch. The elevator pitch. Uh, it's, uh, it's sort of two stories that inter, uh, interconnect in unexpected ways. One is basically a love story, one Hard is a crime pass. story. No. And at their center is the, the character of Ivan Lapshin, who's mm-hmm. a... Um, detective you know and he falls in love with this actress who it sort of implies maybe she's not that great of an actress but he's very head over heels for her and she turns him down and he uh, basically ends up uh, killing the the criminal he's after and this is in 1935 into 1936 soviet union so right before the big purges the you know lots of people being sent off to the gulags the big Stalinist brutality that that's kind of right around the corner when the film is set so it's um it's set in a period of time that that was kind of idealized for a lot of uh, Soviet history it was sort of treated as like oh these the, you know those were the good old days and uh, Garman said you know he was even warned when he started working on the film by the studio that oh like you shouldn't criticize those years those were good years and he, he said well there were no good years under communism so that's kind of where he was coming from with that he demystifies uh, demystifies that period and they, i think he sort of challenges that basic myth of oh like you know like soviet union was basically like good and then stalin corrupted it or derailed it or like it was basically an essentially good thing that uh failed you know like i, I think he tries to show the, the kind of roots of a lot of these problems that would become very bad very fast and do you think, would it be fair or at least interesting to imply that, I want to say Soviet noir, but mm-hmm. not really, more like the crime novels that like Jim Thompson or Dashiell Hammett. Dashiell Hammett is maybe an interesting sure. comparison for the sort of uh, beloved eras that he was a little bit cynic and ascetic about. Do you think a comparison like that is fair or the ones that get brought up for this movie like Chekhov and Dostoevsky are actually more true. I think those kinds of crime novels are what he's playing on. Like in the article, I compare it to Bulldog Drummond at one point, (laughs) but like that's the kind of novel that his father wrote, which the the film was sort of based on his father's writing. Um, The character of Lapshin in the novels, like that's a 1930s pulp kind of detective hero. And I think German you know, he's taking that kind of romantic image of the detective and he's uh, trying to drag it into the real world and say that this guy is like kind of a dork and kind of authoritarian and murderous. And I, I think he just tries to build on that. Well, that's uh, why I thought of Jim Thompson. Framework. Yes. Yeah, is, it, is that the, the post Raymond Chandler, Patricia mm-hmm. Highsmith, you know, the post-Chandler right. crime novelist. And when you're saying that like, German's films can be cynical or have that cynical edge, it is like that almost noir cynicism that you see creep into it sometimes. You know, I think, uh, like, I, I don't necessarily consider him nihilist. I don't think he is. I think his films are very concerned with uh, human beings and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, inherent human goodness, but also inherent human fallibility and our sort of he's a romantic cynic he's a romantic cynic i I think so you know which that's not how you see him characterized in a lot of 
writing about him like even you know like i i don't know if you know uh, ian christie but you know he's somebody who i respect and he knew garman and wrote about him but like you know i was reading his piece about my friend ivan Lapsch, and he's going on about well like at least he he's you know very optimistic about that time period and he, like you can feel the optimism and i just want to like you know reach through my computer and be like no like the optimism is a trap it's a trick like don't don't, don't buy it you know like I, I think even people watching the film can kind of fall for that mm-hmm. trap that the, the characters fall into you know like even though that that's sort of the the thrust of the film is that misplaced optimism and romanticism for the future and about your own ideology I, I think that's a big part of it well and, speaking of the literary influences is, is um is the next one uh crystal off my car is that crystal my car yeah it's yeah. a prequel you... to Dude, where's my car correct, <laughs> correct. <laughs> the, the car cinematic universe and you mentioned uh, in your article <laughs> that you <laughs> you mentioned in your article that you consider it a cinematic answer to Gogol's Dead Souls, which was I found really intriguing. <laughs> and I haven't moment. seen this one. That sounds awesome, though. <laughs> Maybe. Well, like, uh, it, I, I think in some ways, it, like, it, it's almost like a, an analysis of the the like rotten psychology of the Stalinist period as a whole. Like, it's part Just of it. Just real quick, what's the plot, and what does the okay. title refer to? Oh my God, the plot. Uh, this is kind of the point where German switched over in like all his previous films are right around hour and a half hour 35 minutes and then he kind of jumps into like the two and a half hour three hour long film after like the, the film's almost double in length so Cruciali and my car it's it's actually probably plottier than most of his films um although like some people have said there is no plot but uh the story it's about um a brain surgeon who's uh, caught up in the doctor's plot, which uh, for people who don't know, it's the plot where Stalin kind of accused a bunch of doctors, Jewish doctors of trying to poison him. So without really knowing what's going on, this uh, doctor realizes that people are after him. He's going to disappear shortly. He's on somebody's list. Uh, He finds a double in the, in like a walled off section of his hospital and I, I know like a lot of people have said oh that that's maybe like an allusion to the the novella the double but I, I was listening to Garman in one of the interviews and he talks about how in the Soviet history they really would get these lookalikes to sometimes go on a show trial while the real person's already shipped off to a gulag or already dead so like I think he realizes that something bad's about to happen so he tries to escape but they catch him they send him off to a gulag and it, it's like pretty awful. Um, he's beaten, he's raped, uh, his shoe gets stolen. And uh, right, right when it seems like, okay, he's about to give up hope, you know, these, these officials come looking for him and they, uh, they take him away. He's not sure what's happening, but he's kind of hurried off to this like big grand uh, dacha out, outside of Moscow. And, you know, he's led down the hallways, like, you know, put out your cigarette and... Uh, a dacha, because I, I, that word okay. comes up a lot in reference to this. That's just like a vacation home, right? Yeah, it's like, okay. um, it's basically a mansion in this case. Okay. And right. uh, Just that word gets in the description of this movie, that right. word gets used constantly. Okay, I, <laughs> there's a couple of Russian words I used. I don't know, like, if they're 
common enough that people will be yeah. able to follow. But uh, he's led into this room, and there's Stalin on his deathbed, and he's asked to attend to Stalin. And uh, Barry is there, who's basically just waiting for Stalin to die so he can take over, you know, these sort of like whispering in Stalin in one moment, the next he's acting like he, he's sad that Stalin's about to die. You know, he's kind of playing that game. Yeah. Um, you know, so he attends to him. Stalin dies. Uh, Beria gives him a great... Oh, hold on. Martin? Are you there, Martin? Martin, I lost you. John? We lost, we lost Martin. Martin, can you hear us? If you can hear us, wait, can you hear us? Yes, I can hear you. We, John, what, what, did, what word did we lose him on? <laughs> we lost you somewhere. Somewhere on uh, Dacha, I guess. So. Yeah, it's so like you, you three sentences now, okay? after Dacha. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but uh, the doctor is asked to attend to Stalin and... Um, Beria, as soon as Stalin dies, Beria gives him this big kiss and says, Christelia, my car, like, get, get my car, we're going to Moscow. And Beria, that's, that's, uh, that, that was head of the NKVD, like the head of the secret police. I don't know okay. if anyone Just wanted to make sure the, if uh, that Beria would be recognized. Yeah. You mentioned at this point, uh, Martin, there's that, that like, film that just came out, The Death of Stalin, the, the, yeah. the comedy, uh, like, Beria's a major character in that. He was just okay. one of the big, uh, one of the important people vying for uh, the, the position of head of the Soviet Union, basically, and he would lose that. He'd get his own uh, show trial and shot. But, you know, at, at the time, it sort of seems his like... His own show trial? How exciting. The film's funny, Death of Stalin. I mean, this is pretty funny, too. I mean, there's like that inherent irony of Stalin sending away all the doctors to a gulag and then like a week later needing a doctor yeah. badly so uh you know th there's some humor to it just like it, it built right into the, the yeah. structure of the story but uh you know the stock and you mentioned too martin at, at, at this at this point in his career at the post-soviet career he's his films start getting more grotesque right more baroque yeah i think maybe maybe it's the way his style was going naturally, but I think especially just in that era, there were less restrictions put on him. He could kind of do more of what it, what he wanted. So, um, you know, it's quite quite grotesque, some of it. I mean, one of my favorite things is just how the death of Stalin is portrayed. It, it's like very... Uh, <laughs> um, upsetting, I guess. <laughs> it's, it's, you know... Uh, you know, you see this guy foaming at the mouth and farting and, you know, and then kills over. Like, it, yeah. it's a very human death. He doesn't... But it's also Monty Python, what you're describing. Right. It, it is also a little bit Monty Python-y, you know. Like, it, it's not... It's not the kind of, like, serious, dramatic... He closes his eyes and that's the end of the era. Like, he... <laughs> It's not like... I always think about, you know, uh, Dushemsko's Earth where sure. the opening scene is Grant as the grandfather dies and he's there in the field with his family <laughs> and they're all looking at each other and he goes, well, it's time to die now. And they're all like, oh, <laughs> you're like, you know, your Soviet proletarian function. You're like a, a farming machine. Oh, now you're dead. <laughs> I always think about that. Like that would be, if you saw that in real life, you'd be like, these people are fucking insane. You know, like if you stumbled upon that scene in a field, 
you'd be like, oh my God, I'm in the children of the corn. We got to get out of here. Anyway, right. which is a long one to say. I like German's take on things. Yes. It's no less stylized than Dershinsko, but I find it more realistic, believable, not realistic. Yes. How about that? I mean, the, the word that gets kind of stuck on him a lot of the time is hyperrealism. Yeah. You know, it's, um, it's exaggerated, but it, it makes you feel like you're watching something real. There's like an integrity to this reality and the way people behave in it and the way they stub their toes. It's kind of yeah. like reality folded into a little tight frame. That's the feeling I always get when I watch, especially uh, Chris Jelly in my car and Hurt to Be God. Those two are very compact in the <laughs> reality they depict. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. The four we've been through before, they're actually all uh, sort of not tightly grouped together, but over a 20-year span in Soviet history. You have Kristalia of My Car uh, is post-Soviet. That's set in 1953. Mm -hmm. But so my friend uh, Ivan Lapshin, that's 35. Then you have yep. the two war films, Trial on the Road and 20 Days Without War. And then Kristalia of My Car is immediately... He covers the whole Stalinist era. Yeah. yeah. And then it jumps to what many people consider to be his magnum opus in 2013, he makes hard to be a god. And what era is that from, Martin? What time period in history does that cover? <laughs> it's uh, maybe from the future, but also the past. It's uh, a science fiction film about a planet that's like Earth in its medieval era. I, I think, you know, it's sort of funny, the line, it's that it, it's identical to Earth, except it's like a little bit smaller and wetter. <laughs> so uh, it's got these uh, castles. It, it's like, you know, the ecology is the same as on Earth. I remember reading old uh, message boards. I, I thought it was funny from like mid-2000s, people speculating like, oh, are there going to be like aliens in an Alexa German film? Is he going to do like puppets for creatures but yeah. like it's it's not that kind of a film at all like i think if you if you just sat down and watched it not knowing what it was you could mistake it for um medieval drama you know there were a lot of yeah. he did a lot of research into the actual medieval period to create what you're seeing on screen but it's it also flesh and a blood. fantasy it's also uh fantastic well you know what it reminded yes. me of too is the richard lester the like robin and marion and three musketeers it has that same attention to period detail combined mm -hmm. with like people falling in mud and being like sweaty you know what sure. i mean and raucous in the same way obviously that's lester's signature <laughs> sure I, or um i mean a film that you might want to compare it to is uh, Chimes at Midnight or like some of these Shakespeare I, Sir, films. I would not. Okay. <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> I would like for people to see Hard to Be a God, not... People like Chimes at Midnight, right? No? Do they? People, people... Here's... I have a real test of character. If you try and tell me fucking Falstaff is funny, I, you are, I don't trust you. I don't trust you at all. You are, you're not quite my ideological enemy, but like, you'll line me up for the gallows on my show trial. If you're willing to say Chimes at Midnight and Falstaff are funny, man, you're, you're dangerous. All right, all right. I'll, I'll uh, stand away from that, but you know, maybe you something know, like Throne of Blood might be a good comparison where like it's slightly exaggerated. Yeah. Or, maybe, or maybe Spankmeyer too. Oh, <laughs> weird, yeah. I didn't even think of that. that that's an interesting, I might have Faust. to think more about that. Faust. Think of yeah. Faust. It has yeah. that same medieval sci-fi futurism. Yes, version of absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Huh. Well, that, that is interesting. Uh, but like it does, you know, there are points with it deviates from 
real history like there's clearly stuff where it's just like he's making things up and designing things that like his um but his the production plot is essentially it's like there's another planet yeah and could you want to go would you care to go through it sorry i just want to would a character go to the planet? Just, or? No, just the plot. Would you just take us <laughs> okay, the plot. through the plot? Sure. Would you, um, would you like to live on his tiny? <laughs> <laughs> um, so the plot is about uh, one of a group of scientists from Earth who go to basically examine and study this planet. Uh, he's assumed the role of a noble don on this planet. He's called uh, Don Romata, and he's trying to stay passive while there's this uh, wave of anti-intellectualism. You know, he's somebody who's trying to maybe follow the prime directive. He's basically, like there are points where he cheats a little bit. Like he, he does try to give coins to people who are making music or he tries to, uh, like there are people who seem like there could be a renaissance on this planet. There's a, a guy trying to learn to fly, even if it's only downwards, or he'll like come across a, a painting that, you know, makes it look like, oh, maybe this planet could have its own Andre Rublev or could have its own Leonardo da Vinci, you know, but it, it's not going the direction. And it's sort of alluded to that maybe there's, um, maybe this isn't a natural point in the planet's history that's going to evolve into um uh, uh, you know, technologically advanced uh, society. Like maybe this planet, it's stuck in this medieval state. It'll never progress beyond that. And uh, things sort of gradually get worse and worse. His best friend. Uh, in terms Baron, of the anti-intellectualism. In terms of the anti-intellectualism. Political type purge. It's very yes. Soviet in its construction. It's not like an American face in the crowd. Uh, not facing sure, the I mean, cracker barrel uh, philosopher. It's very, it's 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 a Soviet okay. style anti-intellectualism, right? Sure, there's like a hard to be a god version of a knock at the door. You know, when they come to arrest him and bring him <laughs> to oh, his yeah. arrival dawn. You know, there, there are things like that. Um, I mean, I thought it was very interesting. Alexei Garman talked about Russia's history as uh, Russia being a nation that never had a renaissance. You know, he said basically that the cultural innovations of the renaissance had to be Imported. So, like, I think in some ways he's sort of maybe trying to say, like, this is Russia's true face without all the, without the the outside world. This is kind of what Russia really looks like at its core. In yeah. some way, I, I think that that's a big part of it. You know, this is the Russian arc floating out there in space. It's not, it's not the the Russian arc movie in the museum. You know, where you see all these imports from the the rest of continental Europe. You know, like, yeah. The, this is maybe what Russia has always been. There are things that it like, uh, aside from the anti-intellectualism, like there's the uh, anti-redhead sentiment that's going around. Yeah. You know, it's sort of equated to um, the pogroms or, you know, again, like the doctor's plot, the sort of anti-Semitism. Although I think by putting it in that allegorical context, it makes it something more universal than, you know, something that's just specific to Russia's history. You know, I think Russia's history is the starting point, but he kind of expands it by, by doing it in this way. Uh, but to, to finish the plot, um, Don Romat is looking for uh, one particular intellectual who's um, named uh, Budak, and he probably doesn't actually find him, but he finds somebody who they say is Budak, at least, who's like a total idiot who tries to throw acid in his face again it's like this double image coming up in German's films 
and the, the Budak character basically says, well, like, you should just, like, wipe us all out if you're God. <laughs> um, and, you know, he tries to hold off, but, like, uh, Don Ramata's best friend, the Baron, gets killed, his girlfriend gets killed, he really doesn't have anything left, so he basically uh, commits genocide on the, the people of this kingdom, you know, when, and then there's a little dialogue at the end with uh, the other, some of the other earthlings who show up, and Don Ramata decides to stay on this planet while the rest go back to Earth. Whee. Something I really appreciate about the film, you know, because it's based on a book by the uh, Strugatsky brothers, who also, you know, their book was adapted by Tarkovsky into Stalker. Um, and, and very self-seriously, like, I, I would never say that Stalker wasn't, like, a huge important thing that exists, you know, but it's almost completely stripped of, like, the humor, like, the really witty stuff yeah. that you find in their books. And Hard to Be a God, I think, really embraces that humor in a way that you really appreciate that, you know, that they took that from the source material. Right. I, I think well, he maybe it's, like, the only Stravatsky Brothers adaptation right. that doesn't try to imitate Tarkovsky. Like, yeah. I think a lot of people who do adapt uh, Strugatsky brothers, they're like, I, I want to make my own stalker. Like, I think that's yeah. really the motivation when you watch uh, Ugly Swans or um, uh, what, what, what Days of Eclipse, the uh, Sukharov film, like, like you, you just want to be Tarkovsky. Like, that's kind of the... Right, yeah. absolutely. I think because, I don't know if it's because uh, the origins of German's film go all the way back to before stalker was even a thing that like it just feels as if it's a totally parallel vision that has nothing to do with um stalker you know <laughs> like it's like yeah. this film could have come out before stalker for instance and he you know he wrote the first draft it's in collaboration with uh, i think boris stragatsky the, the younger one so you know he worked with the stragatsky brothers closely I, I think it was um pretty you know something that they would have been happy with uh strugatsky bros always sounds to me like guys who should own a sandwich shop in pittsburgh where it like it comes <laughs> everything comes with roast beef on it you know you want a burger with roast beef for the strugatsky bro yeah uh, what, 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 would the, what would the name of the restaurant be roadside picnic right oh, <laughs> oh, <laughs> Um, but it's yeah. a, it's a serious story and it has a lot of really great uh, allegory to it, you know, and I think it could just goes to show that a story can be really witty and funny and serious at the yeah. same time. And again, it's not a knock against Tarkovsky who, as Chris mentioned, you know, also took Lem's novel Solaris and made it super serious. When yeah, he took another funny <laughs> sci-fi writer and made him utterly humorless. But just, and you know, also had people imitating like, I, I, I like Stoker oh, yeah. a lot more than I like Solaris though. That's uh, Oh, me too. I But it's hard to find a point of comparison when you're looking at the film as science fiction. Like, it is a science fiction film, but I think that's almost not the best way of approaching what he's saying with it. And, like, it, it, I don't like, I, I think it, it almost works better as a historical film, yeah. <laughs> as no, stupid as that I, sounds, I, you well, know. The two comparisons that John and I both had. Uh, combined together of Monty Python and Alien 3, it's somewhere in that universe of sort of unclassifiable stuff. Yes. That it that there's sort of, I don't know. And like the 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 Strogatsky bros work itself. There's sort of unsolidly classifiable things. 
And I think that like, it's really smart of your mom too, to approach the story this way where you don't necessarily need to understand what all the, uh, you know, the exact correlations between Soviet history are uh, Russian history are because there, there are parables and there are fables and fairy tales that kind of get mixed into these things. Science fiction, of course, being the big one, but like you mentioned in your article, Martin, how, Seventh Companion has the Rip Van Winkle angle and Trial on the Road even takes like the biblical Lazarus story, you know, things that everyone understands and can like access. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It has, it also has, it has like the, the, the feeling of its satire reminds me of the great picaresques, not in its style, but it has that same, calling it satire maybe isn't, isn't even right. The critique is more sort of global, philosophical, intellectual than it is specifically about Soviet shit, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's got like kind <laughs> yes. of a quick side thing think, going on. Yeah, Don Quixote well, is what I was thinking of, but I think that's, mm-hmm. I don't want to say that either, though. I, th- I think there's part of that in there. Like, again, it's sort of an intricate thing, but... Like, I, I thought it was interesting the more I researched. There was a point when I almost sent the article to you. I thought I was finished. And then I, I just read this introduction that the government had written for uh, Eugene Schwartz, who was the fairy tale author. And it was Gurman talking about fairy tales and how much, you know, this person sort of impacted him. And all of a sudden, like, looking at his films in terms of fairy tale and parable and myth, like, that, that completely changed how I was kind of approaching them at a certain point, I had to kind of go back almost from scratch for, for a lot of it, you know, and I, I think you do find there's sort of a, like on one hand, there, there's a mythic quality to his films, but also it's so he can kind of break certain myths, you know, it, it's a mm-hmm. strange, it, it sounds counterintuitive, but I, I find that's the no, way. Like a myth breaker yeah. is very good way of describing him. Yes. Mm. And that, that, that sort of quality. Well, I think we should we should bring it to an end. We should wrap it up. I don't want this to 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 go on too mm-hmm. long. Uh, obviously, we're going to be publishing these articles. We're going to be promoting it all month long. It's uh, Alexei German month at the Pink Smoke all June. We're really to excited to get by this Martin event. Kessler of Spice <laughs> <laughs> Canada, filmmaker. Oh my goodness! Yeah, uh, uh, <laughs> I made out with the Marquis de Sade fame, Martin Kessler. Um, we are are really excited to get this out in front of people John did you have any closing thoughts Uh, anything else you wanted to to put to Martin only that you know again coming from somebody who has vague familiarity with the work uh, I'm really excited to get the article out there for the reason that I was totally engaged the entire time and I'm excited to see these movies I'm excited to go out and, and watch them now thanks to Martin and I think everyone else will too Thank you. I, yeah, I mean, it was a real pleasure to put together. It was sort of a much bigger project than I ever thought it would be. So it, it ended up being quite satisfying to see that the, the yeah, end is in no, sight. No, but, John opened it and was like, Chris, have you looked at this? It's 136 pages. And I was like, oh, that's hey, not even the chapter on Heart to Be a God yet. It's, <laughs> <laughs> like for our website? Is that because... Uh, <laughs> I mean, like, th- that was one of the big surprises because, um, I, like, on the uh, Zebras in America podcast, Leanne was on recently after she had seen Heart to Be a God. And one of the things she said is, like, why aren't there books written about this guy? I sort of felt the same way. And what was a surprise to me is there's actually, like, a lot 
of material out there, you know, there's tons of interviews. Like he was always very vocal. There's like a lot of information, you know, they, they wrote a lot. It's just like nobody really put it together. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I don't well, like, really, I think really, it's, I feel like we are putting out that you wrote for us the definitive uh, Alexei German piece. And that's why we're really excited to get it out there. And thank you again for doing thank the you. show. Oh, thanks thank for you having for me writing it. Thank you for doing the show. Thank you, Martin. Thank you to <laughs> our, welcome. thank you so much to our Patreon subscribers uh, for listening to the episode. Uh, keep an eye out within the uh, within a week. We're going to have the first part of Martin's piece up, and it will be going all month. Uh, thank you very much, everyone. Have a great time. Bye.